Our text today is Genesis 48, and we're looking at the subject of Manasseh and Ephraim, the two sons of Joseph. The first thing we observe in our text, verse 1 and so on, is an aging and ill Jacob. Aging and ill. They often go together, not always, but in this case, it's evident. Getting old and eventually dying is part of life, as Jared brought out in an excellent message last Sunday. It doesn't matter how good a life you live. It doesn't matter how righteous your behavior. It doesn't matter how faithful your devotion to God. It doesn't matter how circumspect your walk with God. All are going to die. We all die because the wages of sin is death, says the Bible, which ought to sound a loud and clarion call that all of us to a man must be sinners, else there would be no death. I don't think that there is any clearer proof of our sin than our death. We all die because we all sin. Evolutionists teach us that death was always part, always parcel of earthly life. But they're dead wrong. Paul says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sin. Romans 5 verse 12. What he is saying is that death was not evident in the Garden of Eden until Adam and Eve disobeyed the clear prohibition of God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they sinned, the curse of death came just as God had warned would happen. Jeremiah, writing centuries later, says this, The sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How ruined we are! How great is our shame! We must leave our land because our houses are in ruins. Now, O women, hear the word of the Lord. Open your ears to the words of his mouth. Teach your daughters how to wail. Teach one another a lament. Death has climbed in through our windows and has entered our fortresses. It has cut off the children from the streets and the young men from the public squares. Jeremiah 9, verse 19 and following. The psalmist addressing God says, Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created all men. What can man live and what man can live and not see death? Or save himself from the power of the grave. And the implicated answer is, well, no one can. That is, we're all going to die and we're all going to go to the grave. That's Psalm 89, verse 47. So now, with Jacob, it is no different, except to say that with many of these Old Testament patriarchs, somehow they knew their death day was approaching. Now, if you know your death day is near, God is giving you the opportunity to right wrongs, to clear up the things which you have been negligent, to tighten up loose ends, and so on. 
And one thing prized greatly by these Old Testament believers was to be able to bless their family members before departing. So when Joseph showed up at Jacob's sickbed, verse 2 tells us, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. And he proceeded to tell Joseph the good news. Verse 3. God Almighty, it's El Shaddai. We have that song as one of our choruses in the uh, purple book. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. That's Bethel. That's the old name for Bethel. In the land of Canaan. And there... He blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and I will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples and I will give this land an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. Ephraim and Manasseh, Genesis 48, verse 3 through 6. Centuries later, after the exodus, after the exodus from Egypt, when Israel's descendants possessed the land of Canaan, it was divided up among the sons of Jacob, including his two adopted sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. But because the tribe of Levi, and I'm reading scripture now, received no share of the land, but only towns to live in with pasture lands for their flocks and herds, Joshua 14, verse 4, the tribal account remained the same. Think about this. Ephraim gets half 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 a land possession, Manasseh gets a half land possession. Half plus half is a whole. That's the whole land that would have gone to Levi. So the tribal count remains the same. Yet 12 tribes, 12 tracts of land. But one of the tracts was divided between these two brothers. Now what happens here in this text is that Jacob blesses Joseph's children. Like his father Isaac before him, we are told, verse 10, Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. But his confession given to Joseph in verse 11 says, I never expected to see your face again. And now God has allowed me to see your children too. This is significant because the context tells us that Joseph positioned his two sons so that Manasseh, the firstborn, the oldest, would be right in line with Jacob's right hand. Okay, so you get that. Here he's sitting on the edge of his bed. One son is placed right out from his right hand. And Ephraim, the younger, would be lined up with Jacob's left hand the less dominant position of blessing. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Wasn't Jacob himself given the preeminent position of blessing in the household of Isaac? And wasn't Esau given the lesser position of blessing, although he was the oldest and firstborn? So God was in that in Jacob's own life. And now we see this thing is coming back again. 
God had other plans, though, for uh, these two boys than what Joseph intended. Instead of reaching straight forward with his arms, right hand on Manasseh's head, left hand on Ephraim's head, verse 14 tells us Israel crossed his arms, thus placing his right hand on Ephraim, though he was the younger, the scripture says here. How did nearly blind Jacob do this? Verse 11. God has allowed me, God has allowed me to see your children. To see your children. This is not, this is not the subtle inner knowledge we sometimes refer to as insight. No, Jacob was enabled by God to actually see and discern who among the two brothers was the younger. Well, as we read on, Joseph was not pleased with Jacob's intent, and he tried to forcibly move Jacob's hand from Ephraim to Manasseh, verse 17 and 18, perhaps believing that Jacob's failing eyesight had caused him to make a mistake. But Jacob hung tough, refusing to comply with Joseph's wishes and assuring his son, verse 19, I know, my son, I know. What's he saying? He's saying to Joseph, I have not made a mistake. I know exactly what I am doing. Manasseh will be blessed too. Nevertheless, verse 19, his younger brother will be greater than he. And verse 20 gives the summation. So Jacob put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Now this is not stubborn old grandpa showing favoritism to one grandchild over another. But as Hebrews 11 verse 21 states, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. This spiritual adherence to the will of God is brought out in our text in the extended blessing of Joseph by his father Jacob. Look at verse 15 and following. Then he blessed Joseph and he said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walk, the God who has been with me at my shepherding all my days of my life, the angel who has delivered me from harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name, the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. Verse 15 and 16. What a legacy, think about this. What a legacy to bequeath upon your children and your grandchildren. The inheritance you leave your kids, your home, your real estate, a bank account, a good education, friendship, counsel, all of those things pale in comparison to the spiritual legacy of faith in God proven by a life lived for God. Paul words it this way. 
godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith. And they've pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 and fall. There's something more valuable than all the material things you put in the will for your kids. And it's this legacy. You know, we have to be better parents and grandparents than what the world is, which has sold out its soul for temporal prosperity. Jesus put it this way concerning the builder of barns whose sole ambition is stated. This is what I'll do, he says. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. Luke 12, verse 18. If you read this, you'll see that he, his plans were completely self-absorbed and completely sold out to luxury and money and ease and lack and lack of faith in God. Here's what I'll do. I don't need God. I, I, I'll just build bigger barns, store more stuff, clip my coupons, through the years, go to the bank, take my life of ease, and live sumptuously. He ignored God, but God did not ignore him. His plan had worldly, business savvy, granted, written all over it. How to save money, how to make money, how to hedge against inflation. He had it all down so he could retire with abundance. Yet the scripture says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life, your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be. I'm still quoting. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich Towards God. Luke 12, verse 20 and 21. Solomon, whose wisdom was legendary, who the scripture says made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedars as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Second Chronicles 1, verse 15. This Solomon, nonetheless, 
concluded this. Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats a little or much. But the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. Or wealth lost through some misfortune. So that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb. And as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that can carry in his hand. This too is grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 17. This is wise Solomon, very wealthy Solomon. And he's saying to all of us, it's wind, folks. It's wood. It's hay. It's stubble. It's like the grass of the field that's here today and burned and scorched tomorrow and good for nothing. But there is another kind of wealth which will ever remain, and that's stated by Solomon's father, King David, who said, The words of the Lord are flawless like silver, refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Psalm 12, verse 6. The word of God is like that. Or again, he writes, The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold and much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 19, 7 and following. Notice what he says about the word of God. It's trustworthy, it's right, it's radiant, it's pure, it's sure, it's righteous, it's precious like gold, and it's sweet like honey. Wow, he's just stacking up the adjectives. To show us what we have when we have a word from God. You can't say that about any of the material things that we have, that we hold on to, that we think are really living. It's just no comparison. Now what are the lessons that we learn at the feet of this old man Jacob? Well, the first thing is to learn that all people die. You might think of a 
Genesis 48 as Jacob's swan song. He's getting ready to go. But all people die. Pagans die. Christians die. Adults die. Children die. Every race on earth wrestles with a mortality rate. God-fearing people die and God-haters die. Solomon writes, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head, while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be remembered long. In days to come, both are going to be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 13 and following. You know, this wise guy that wrote this book got some pithy stuff, doesn't he? I mean, he just puts it on the table the way it is. He doesn't candy coat it. And he lets us know that he's analyzed all this stuff from the wisdom that God has given him. And he's come up with these conclusions. It would appear also that much can be said about the death of mankind being no better than the death of dumb beasts in the field. Again, Solomon. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. And I also thought, as for man, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. And we ask the question, how so? He answers, Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Men have no advantage over the animal. I'm still reading. Everything is meaningless. What's he mean that there's no difference in death between an animal and a person? He goes on to tell us. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Ecclesiastes 3, 17 and following. So he's basically saying, in this, that we all die and decay, we're like the animals like that. That's what happens. The psalmist, however, shows a vital distinction between the death of animals and that of God's people, between the death of the unrepentant and that of believers. He says it this way. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are destined for the grave, and death will feed on them. 
The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their fears will deform, their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. But, here it is, contrast, God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men do praise you when you prosper, he will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. There's the similarity. Psalm 49, verse 13 through 20. The writer, the writer of Hebrews also makes a vital distinction. When animals die, there's no accounting for their conduct, for how many other animals they may have killed and eaten to survive, for how ferocious, how mean-spirited they have conducted themselves. None of that applies to animals. But for all rational, thinking, morally responsible mankind, God declares, man is destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment. Hebrews 9, verse 27. God isn't going to cause the animals to stand before him and give an account of their conduct. But he's going to call you and me and everybody to stand before the throne seat of Christ to give an account for our conduct. Would you prefer to meet God as your maker, your judge, your jury? Or would you prefer to meet him as your redeemer, your savior, and your friend? Here are your choices. To me, it's, there's no contest. So, Jacob is ill, and he's dying. And it's a reminder to us all that we all die. Jacob, godly guy, but he's going to die. Second lesson here, the opportunity to give or to be a blessing to others rallies the heart of believers. When word came to Joseph, your father is ill, the servants who came were not saying to Jacob, uh, or to Joseph rather, your father has the sniffles. That's not what they're saying. No, it was an indication to Joseph that his dad was on his deathbed. This is why he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him and hurried off to see his father. There was no time to waste if Joseph wanted his father to bestow his final blessing on his boys before dying. Many a family has experienced the same thing. When my mother took ill and was uh, admitted to the hospital in Rochester, New York. My sister Sandy made a phone call to me, to my brother, and to our respective families, and basically she said, better come now 
if you want to see mom one last time before she goes home to be with the Lord. So we all made quick arrangements. We jumped in our cars and headed for New York without delay. Same thing most recently with Connie informing her children in Ohio that their dad, Pastor Tucker, was dying in Missouri. So all of us, my family off to Rochester, New York, Connie's family heading to Missouri recently, arrived in time to say our last goodbyes. But something unusual happened with Jacob when his son and grandson showed up at his bedside. Verse 2, when Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel, that's his new God-given name, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. This was more than, oh, my son, it's been a long time since I've seen you, so glad to see you. It's more than that. No, the rallying energy which came from the one Jacob named God Almighty had to do with the opportunity to being given to Jacob one more time, one more time to give and to be a spiritual blessing to his family. I do not know the future timetable that God has for you and me. But the prayer of the psalmist seems appropriate for us all, and it is this. The psalmist says, Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble, May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. And yes, establish the work of our hands. Psalm 90, verse 12 and following. Teach us, Lord, to number our days aright. To calculate things aright. The news that Jacob's family had come to see him on his sickbed was a shot of adrenaline to his body. And that enabled him to give and to be a blessing to them. Jesus put it this way, as long as it's day, as long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. John 9, verse 4 and 5. In other words, there, there's coming an end day for what I can do. And to us as disciples, he said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in that same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 14 and following. We have a work day. It's the present day. It's our living day. And it only happens until our death day 
When death day comes, your work day ends. And only what has been done for Christ will last. We need to be light. So, Jacob gets one more opportunity to see his son, Joseph, and his grandchildren. And he snatches it, an opportunity to be a blessing. Thirdly, we need to learn that people of the world become the people of God by adoption. Let me say it again. People of the world become the people of God by adoption. Through no fault of their own, Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, were born to an Egyptian mother, Asenath, chapter 41, verse 50, daughter of a pagan priest from Egypt. So they were thus citizens of Egypt and heirs of everything pagan and devoid of God. And then along comes Jacob, who understands full well that Joseph boys have no roots and no claims to the kingdom of God, so long as they remain citizens of Egypt and aliens to the kingdom of God. And he declares, your two sons born to you in Egypt will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine. Verse 5. This was no smokescreen promise. These two sons became heads of two tribal clans in Israel, complete with their own land, their own livestock, their own place of rule, and so on. Jacob literally conscripted these boys to be his own In his words, just as Reuben and Simon are mine. Verse 5. They were his blood-born sons. But he says to Joseph, I'm taking your two boys. And I'm adopting them as mine. They're going to become part of my family. Do you know that it is the same for every child of God who comprises the church of Christ? Paul says, He, God, chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us. It's not owed us. It's not earned by us. Freely given us in the one that he loves, his son. Do you know that the church is the largest adoption agency in the world? Because all of us in the church, if we're in the true church, are adopted. Except the head of the family, who is Jesus Christ, the uniquely born of of God. The only begotten. John 3, of God. Everyone else, you, me, and everyone else, are adopted children. And what made us such a favored people? Were we chosen for adoption because we were somehow different from other sinners? No. The very next chapter in Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions 
and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that is Satan. The spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. That's where you were. He goes on. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and its thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. In other words, he's saying, you, you were no prize for God in choosing you. You were just people worthy of his wrath and worthy of his destruction. Well, then why? Why were we chosen? Why were we adopted? He says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive spiritually with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Ephesians 2, verse 1 and following. That's all of us, if we're in the church of Christ. Adopted children can claim no obligation on the part of the adopted parent to choose them. Like Ephraim and Manasseh, they are Egyptians and part of the world. But God can and does call his saints from the world of sinners. And the call of God is a summons that none can reject. Our role then is Ephesians 2 verse 10. We are God's workmanship. Yeah, that's true. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The saved are not an afterthought with God, nor is their purpose an afterthought. Ephraim and Manasseh were actually saved out of the world by Jacob's adoption of them as his own. And they shared the same privileges, they shared the same opportunities as his own blood-born sons. And so too, Christ's love for us drew us to him by his eternal plan. And we are given the charge to call his God, Abba, Father, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Finally, let us learn that there are no accidents, there are no accidents in a world controlled by God. We speak of accidents, but we need to think this through. Joseph had it all worked out the way he wanted Jacob to bless his two boys. The lion's share of the blessing was to go to Manasseh, the oldest son. And so he lined Manasseh up with Jacob's right arm and his right hand, symbolic of strength, Symbolic of might, the hand, you know, that holds the royal scepter over the clan. And his thinking all along that Jacob would simply follow through by placing his right hand on Manasseh's head to bestow his blessing. But then Jacob did the unthinkable. He crossed his arms, switching left hand to Manasseh and right hand to Ephraim. Dad, you can't do that, Joseph protested. It's not right. It's not the way things are done. Yes, but it was going to be the way things were done. 
Why? Because traditions of men devoid of God's will are to be abandoned as the way of doing things. Men fight God with their traditions. They even elevate their traditions over the commands and teachings of God in the scripture. This was the major defect with the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. Now every family has traditions which they feel, with which they feel comfortable, which usually emit warm and fuzzy feelings of contentment and stability and peace. Usually our traditions swirl around such things as holidays and birthdays and favorite vacation spots. We have our traditions. But when men devise religious traditions contrary to God's word and then treat them as though they had the authority of God's word, these can endanger men's souls with error because of falsehood, which damns a person rather than saves a person. They believe a lie rather than the truth. In Jesus' case, we read, So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Mark 7, verse 5 through 9. That's quite an indictment. It was traditional in the oriental culture of Jacob's day to pronounce the primo blessing on the firstborn son of the family. But God's rule was this. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will enter or try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you. I don't know where you came from. And then you will say, Well, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, 
There are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Luke 13, verse 23 and 30. It's important to see that God is not impressed with our traditions, not even our religious traditions. Not all tradition is bad, but when we elevate tradition over thus saith the Lord, the word of God, then we're nullifying the word of God and we're making our activities and plans to be as important or more important than when God speaks. So we learn that from this text. Jacob wanted his sons bless the Oriental way. I mean Joseph. One of them blessed the Oriental way. And Jacob says, ain't going to happen. And when he switched his arms, Joseph said, oh, yes, it is. And he tried to take his father's hands and switch them back. But God was in Jacob's thinking. The blessing goes to Ephraim. You're not going to deal with God in the same way and get anywhere. You can't say, well, I've always thought. You cannot say, well, I've always believed. You cannot say, we've always done it this way. And then as though that were the word of God, as that, that was the stamp of authority on your activities. All of those things must be set aside. And Jesus' teaching, believe me, confronts all of us in our traditional thinkings. It confronts us where we think we are. And it says, you need to change, and you will change. And if you don't, you will be cast out, and you'll be looking in. And you'll see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets, but you won't be there. Do you know Christ today? You're only going to get to glory through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. How many saviors are there? Three, four, five, ten, one. Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. One way to heaven. It's not by works of righteousness. It's not by doing this or doing that. It's not by following your traditions. It's through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. His shed blood, which we're going to celebrate in the next service. His shed blood, his broken body. Shed and broken for his people. And our task is to believe and trust in that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Jacob. Wow. He even had to go up against his own son because his son was right in, uh, you know, he was right in the, uh, the uh, traditions of the time. And you had to set him straight. You said, I know, I know. Son, I know what I'm doing. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jacob was actually worshiping God when he blessed Joseph's sons. It was a matter of worship. He was doing the right thing. I pray that you will help us, Lord. Help us to think about the legacy we leave our children we talked of earlier. Homes, property, money, yeah, 
But Solomon says it's not going to benefit them. They're not going to take it with them. Help us to leave a legacy of righteousness, of truth, and of the gospel of Christ. For every unsaved person here today who's put their roots down in this world to the depth where these things that are material are more important and more coveted than the word of God that the psalmist says is more refined than the best gold. To know God, boy, to be at peace with God, to have eternity set firmly upon the work of Jesus and his work alone. It's a great blessing. I pray that you will help us. Grant us that faith we do not have and that repentance uh, that we don't want to give because it means we're going to have to give up our sin and our lusts and our love for other things. And we're going to have to love Christ and love him best and love him most. I pray that you will burn these truths into our heart. In Christ's name, amen.